Coming up next, the booking reads, A Streetcar Named Desire and The Crucible. Welcome to The Booking. This is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, ready to get into some mid-century, the 20th century, that is. Man, I could have been talking about so many centuries there. There's a lot of them to choose from, but I was talking about the 20th century, a very interesting century full of McCarthyism and uh, uh, sexual deviance that people were aware of, like... You could be married to someone who is gay and what? stuff like that. That was actually cut out of the streetcar named Desire movie. The Blanche's story of her first husband, among oh, other yeah. things. There's a couple of things that they changed. There's that. Maybe Brent, I'm stepping on Brennan's context here. No, but not, they, they changed I... that. They, they cut down the scene at the end, obviously. They made it more symbolic and, than it already was in the play. Mm-hmm. Enough so that you, you know what happens in the movie, but there's a little bit of plausible deniability about it. And then the movie actually ends with Stella mad at Stanley and running up to the neighboring apartment like she does early in the play, which gave the movie makers plausible deniability that Stanley was going to somehow be punished for his actions. But the movie makers are also intentionally trying to get around the code by saying, well, Stella actually does this kind of thing all the time, so it's not much of a punishment, but at least we'll leave Stanley in a bad place so the stupid puritanical censors can feel good about things. Good for them. Good for them. Good for the censors. Good for Streetcar Named Desire. Well, that's probably why I had the impression that I liked the movie more than I liked the play. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we should have watched the movie. Maybe we will sometime. Get us up to $10,000 per a day. Month. Yeah, a month. We'll go a month. Come on, yeah. A, day, and, a day's a little steep. <laughs> we'll watch. 10000 a month. That's What fair. would that be? 10000 a day? <laughs> 10000 a day? <laughs> I'm figuring well, it out, people. <laughs> how much would that be per month, you I mean? I don't know. I don't want to do the math. Take four zeros, How many months? attack it on to 365. <laughs> I was about to do 356. You can remember how much, how many days in a year? That's $3,650,000. I think that would probably so be... Divide that by 12 so we can give them a monthly amount. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that Warhorn would be set. And we'd be okay. I mean, you might be able to handle both your salaries at that rate. Maybe. I don't know. We'd finally be close to being able to be paid what we deserve. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's $304,000 a month. Not Rounded up to 305. No, you guys got that. Jake could afford the staff to take care of his fourth swimming pool instead of yeah. just letting it lang. <laughs> yeah, it is getting <laughs> instead kinda, of just let it fill up with it leaves and stuff. Green. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of green. I keep getting worried yeah. he's going to well, get he, shot in it. He does throw those extravagant has, parties. Yeah. Who, who has time to keep up with your home in Barbados? I just don't, you know. Nobody does. Nobody has that kind of time. And who has time to listen to this podcast? Not new listeners. They're gone now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now we can introduce ourselves. <laughs> We've cleared the room. My name is Nathan Alberson. As I said, humble and obedient host. That's Brandon Chastine right there. Hey. He's a scholar who's a baller of reading. Uh, what did we call him last episode? He's a saucy dog. You're a saucy <laughs> dog, Brandon. And that has to be a t-shirt. I think saucy dog has to be something. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where the saucy dog journey ends. I just know we've taken the first step on the saucy dog journey. So we'll, we'll see what it becomes. Maybe a bookening themed restaurant? The saucy dog? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe the, the saucy dog that already exists will want to team up with us somehow you could have all sorts of creative dishes if mm-hmm. you live anywhere near the saucy dog you need to go talk to the manager or the owner for us and tell them about a great promotional opportunity what kind of creative dishes would they have brandon 
Oh, <laughs> you put me on the spot. <laughs> I see we're still concerned about new listeners being yeah. around. <laughs> uh, I mean, they would have the uh, the War and Peace. The War and Peace? The War and Peace, that's right. The War on Peace. The War on Peace. It's Meaning just meat. There, yeah, there's no peas on that dish. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think we've mined all the gold <laughs> out of that premise. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> all right, uh, Jake, you're the pastor who's master of reading. Good to see you. Yep. Good to be here. Is it? Is it good to see me? Yeah, it's always good to see you. Okay, and good. Especially when we're talking about mid-century you look, theater. <laughs> you look fresh and glowing. You do look fresh and glowing. I believe you just came from the gym not too long ago. This is a rare early morning booking recording, mid-morning yeah. booking recording. I did go to the gym this morning, yeah. Yep. So yeah, maybe I've still got a little bit of glow about me. A little yeah. bit of glow. Normally, that's, that's usually what happens. I go to the gym and I come out with a glow, mm-hmm. not yeah. looking like a haggard, beat up. No, tired old man. No, no, not at all. Those yeah. muscles are just tense and mm-hmm. rippling. Rippling. <laughs> rippling. <laughs> yeah, if people hear anything, it's rippling. Yeah. It's those muscles moving <laughs> under that shirt. <laughs> okay, are the old listeners gone yet? <laughs> Is it just the three of us? <laughs> Let's talk about these two plays. Do we have to? Yeah, we do. Okay. And I don't think they're as bad as all that. They're not. But We're not going to hate them. I yeah. love them. I wish we could read <laughs> nothing but Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. And Arthur Miller plays. Brandon, uh, take it away. Bang, bang. You're the contextual Texan. Okay. And you um, provide much needed context for these works. I do. We usually start with biographies, but today we're dealing with two guys. And so actually what I want to do is start with the history that gets us to them. Mm-hmm. Because they were pretty much the same time. They pretty much lived during the same time period. Uh, Arthur Miller was born four years after Tennessee Williams. He only recently died. Well, recent in the grand scheme of things. He died like 14 years ago <laughs> in 2005. <laughs> he was only recently born in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> Thank you. Well, David. you know, yeah. on a show where saying mid-century needs to be qualified. Right. Yeah. You know, 14 <laughs> years ago is incredibly recent. That's right. 14 years ago, Brandon was a toddler. I was. That's right. I'm only 15. <laughs> 14 years ago, Shakespeare had been dead for 400 years. That's right. Is that true? Is that math? Does that math actually work out? Pretty much, yeah. W- roughly. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah, they had the big celebration. Uh, that's right. That. That's right. We're glad he's dead. We are glad he's <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Shakespeare died. That hack died 400 years he's ago. He's overrated. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Stopped oppressing the world with his plays. All right. Speaking of oppressing the world, Brandon, go on with your content. And Tennessee Williams was dead probably about a year before we were all born. 1983, were we all still... Just uh, gleams in our father's eyes? I was going to say that, Nathan, but you went for it. You know, if people don't know, babies are made through gleams in father's eyes. It's it's the facts of life. I don't apologize for them. But what we want to start with is... So we'll get to other places here in a minute with like the politics and stuff. We'll Mm -hmm. do that after when we talk about the guys. We're going to start with just a brief history of the theater. <laughs> a brief history of the theater. Ah. So the red curtain opens and we are now going to do a brief history of theater. A man emerges on the Sophocles. stage alone. Yes. We're actually, people can go and they can learn about all that history some other place. <laughs> but yes, there's Sophocles and there's Aeschylus and there's the Greek playwrights. Aeschylus. Aeschylus. So we're not going to do a complete history of, the, of theater. We've done some of that with earlier Shakespeare episodes, but it's not it's just not useful for this episode. Mm-hmm. What we want to talk about instead is where theater was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And one place that it had gone was heavy realism with uh, dramatists from especially Norway with Ibsen. Mm-hmm. And he was 
very heavily influential, especially towards the end of the century. And I think that for purposes of these plays, the most important would be A Doll's House. And if people haven't read A Doll's House, I don't know if we'll ever do A Doll's House on the book. And I'm sure we will. Yeah, like year 17 or something. Yeah, eventually. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not uh, high on the list, but I'd like to get to it. It was, it's a play that deals with a, a, a household where the marriage is really unhappy. But especially it focuses on the woman and her desire to be free of the shackles that bind her to this house. Mm. And it's a very popular play today. And I wonder why. Yeah, maybe maybe because of, uh, could be because of the feminism. Hey. Could be because of the latent feminism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it influenced at all that dingbat who did the latest Star Wars. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. <laughs> a guy who thinks he's profound. I was kind of, <laughs> I was hoping to, when you said that, I was struggling, I was going to. I'm obviously struggling just in general right now. I don't know if you've noticed this. You're trying to pull a different dingbat for Star Wars? Or? Yeah, yeah, on purpose. It's all that, it's all that blood flowing to, to those I was, muscles. I was, yeah, I know, right? I was trying to pull Margaret Atwood. It would have been great if I could have, that dingbat who did Star Wars, and I was able to hit let's Margaret just, Atwood. Let's just put it, let's just, artificial. Let's, let's just oh, let's do just a doing it. We're definitely going to cut this. Yeah, set up. Yeah. Oh, are we? No, no, just do dingbat. Oh, yeah, that dingbat who directed Star Wars. Margaret Atwood? Whoa, Jake. <laughs> hey, no, you did it. You did it. <laughs> you did it. The booking is done. Close shop. <laughs> Drop the mic, baby. <laughs> so you had, uh, you had Ibsum, mm -hmm. who was- Ibsum? Ibsum, that's right. Ibsum. Lorem Ibsum. Lorem Ibsum. Lorem, Lorem Ibsum, yeah. That famous guy. Very hard to understand. Yeah. <laughs> almost nonsense. It almost does seem like nonsense. You're right. And- Good grief. Man, do I feel clever right now. <laughs> yeah, thank, great job, We're Nathan. All, we are all clever. clever. We're all clever. <laughs> so, but anyways, you need to, uh, people need to understand that Ibsen was a thing at the time with his realist drama. He, was all, he also changed the form a little bit. His, most of his plays are less than the five-act standard, so things were moving away from Shakespeare and more towards plays that were focused on small-scale happenings in households or in families and meant for a sparser stage setup, mm -hmm. more focus on just the drama between these characters. So that was Ibsen. The other great, who's actually, I think, the better playwright is Anton Chekhov, who was writing actually around the same time as Ibsen. They were contemporaries as well. He's famous, if, if people want to go and read his most famous plays, it's either The Seagull or The Cherry Orchard, both of which are pretty good. But they're similar. They focus on a family. The Cherry Orchard is kind of the drama surrounding this one higher class family. And this cherry orchard that acts as a symbol, surprisingly. And it's there, latent as a symbol, to point towards certain things, which is where we get Chekhov's gun. Mm -hmm. Things that are put there that will then be used later on in the play. So Chekhov was very influential, but for similar reasons. They were pushing drama away from the sort of ornate productions that were popular, or even from, <laughs> like in London and America at the time, what would have been very popular would have been stuff like Gilbert and Sullivan, with the rising Broadway productions in New York. So on the one hand, you have like the dark, stark realism. And on the other hand, you just have goofy fluff. Yeah. And that's kind of where America was at the time. Like when Abraham Lincoln went to Ford's Theater and was shot, it wasn't a serious play that he was going to see. If it had any effort at being serious, it wasn't the way that Miller and uh, Williams fancied themselves as serious. Mm -hmm. It would have been kind of sentimental. It would have been kind of... Yeah, sentimental, I think, is probably the correct word for it, because sentimentality it was a popular theater, it was populist theater, and it would have drawn from those emotions that populist theater typically draws from. Well, if I, rem if I recall correctly, there was a body joke 
that Booth timed his shot with, right? Like just um because then everybody would be laughing. I used to, I bet I could pull it if you gave me about a couple minutes to think about it. But yeah, it was just a body joke okay. about that always struck me as not being especially funny. <laughs> but it was the kind of low humor that everybody would have been was, laughing at. It was, it was very low humor. President yeah, Lincoln would have remember. enjoyed seeing, I guess. Yeah, but the important thing, so yeah, is that the theater at the time like that, it was to go have fun at the theater. It wasn't like where your serious art was happening. Mm-hmm. The serious art was happening in opera. And we'll get a fascinating chance to look at this because he's kind of writing at the same time as well when Tol- with Tolstoy with War and Peace. Mm. When the nobles want to go somewhere serious, they go to see the opera. Theater is more of playtime. It's, it's, you might have some serious playwrights here and there. And, and for anyone listening and they want to say that I'm wrong about all this, of course, you then would have your avant-garde little theaters popping up here and there as well. That's always existed. You've always had your bohemians. But it wasn't like mass massive the way that Miller and Williams would make it massive along with one other guy, Eugene O'Neill, with for American theater. Before we get there, I think Jake's got the joke. Yep. I've, got, I've got the big laugh. All the right. big laugh of the play. The big yep. laugh of the bookening now. Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sockdologizing old man trap. <laughs> <laughs> Bang! Nathan's dead. That's a bad joke. <laughs> Boo. Too soon. <laughs> is it too soon? Yeah, too soon. Hey, too I soon. was just at his memorial. Lincoln's? Yeah. They, hold, they held one? They did. <laughs> Boom! Too late. Yeah, too late. <laughs> Finally, the guy's getting some respect. Okay. <laughs> this is fun. So we have those two theaters, and I mean, you know, you would know more about Gilbert and Sullivan than I do, mm-hmm. probably, but they would have been late 1800s, is that right? Yeah. And so you had the Broadway productions that were, as far as the set, and as far as even the quality of like the music and the writing goes, they would have been setting a standard to an extent. But even then, that, I don't think anybody would have seen that as like the serious theater, mm-hmm. like Ibsen and Chekhov were beginning to create and bring back into popularity. Yeah, I, don't, I wonder if any of our listeners have ever seen the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy, where James Cagney plays George M. Cohen, who wrote songs like Over There and Yankee Doodle Dandy. And it's his, you see, you get a little window. If you want to watch that movie, it's a really good movie. It's a, it's a, bio, it's a biographical story about this playwright from the early 20th century, and you get a little window into what his plays would have been like. <laughs> and they're really patriotic. And really cheesy, and you know, he's Yankee Doodle Dandy. He's gonna go to the racetrack and he's gonna win some money so he can marry his best girl. And there's gonna be a big number every 10 minutes where they, they sing. The Pirates sing, of Penzance. Pir- as well. Yeah, Pirates of Penzance is just silly. There's no substance to it. That's Gilbert and Sullivan. There's, there's no, it's just wordplay and silliness and stuff and nonsense. There's, there's nothing to it. Yeah, and so that's, that's the state of theater. And the, I mean, you go there and it's still high production. There's a lot of money that goes into it. And it's not just the foolish bodiness that you would have had at the theater. These are, these are big scale productions. But that's kind of what is dominant in American, on Broadway at the time, before we have this moment where we have the three, these three playwrights that really would change American theater. So, I mean, I'm trying to set them up. I, I hope it's clear to people that Williams and Miller, they were really, really important mm-hmm. in, a, in drama, American drama especially. But before we get to them, there's a couple more things to talk about with theater. Um, so we had Ibsen and we had Chekhov, and we need to know that they're on the rise and they're making it possible to have this realist theater that is focused on this kind of, kind of psychological dramas and families. If anybody read these plays, you know why I'm bringing those guys up in particular, because obviously they had a huge influence on both Miller and Williams. Okay, 
So we'll pause there. We need to talk about another person that was very important, and you might actually be able to speak to him just as much as I can. It's Konstantin Stanislavski. Mm -hmm. He was important because he brought some weight and respect to the role of the actor that hadn't been there before. And so that stage drama, so you had Ibsen and Chekhov who were bringing respect and weight to drama writers, dramatists. Drama writers. writers. (laughs) There's a word for that, dramatists, (laughs) Brandon. (laughs) And then you had Stanislavski, who was bringing weight and authority to actors because he had this very complicated method for the actors to, if I I understand right. I can talk about that. Yeah, you can probably talk about it better than I can. So Stanislavski was very important in the first three centuries, or or three centuries. (laughs) The first, this is why Brandon handles this stuff. First three decades of the 20th century. Of Jesus. There were prophecies right. of Konstantin Stanislavski. <laughs> you can find some cave paintings on the wall of great method actors. If you squint, you can see Daniel Day-Lewis. So Stanislavski is this Russian acting guy who, acting guy, yeah. just like a writing drama. <laughs> drama, drama I think there's writer. a word for that too, Nathan. Maybe actor? Actor. And he, basically what he invented is method acting. And and if you know method acting, you know it because of the crazy modern practitioners like Daniel Day-Lewis is the one you think of. Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. is going to immerse himself in his role. He's going to become the character. Everyone's going to have to call him President Lincoln on set. And it's a way of him actually becoming the character you know you can watch that dumb not netflix documentary about how jim carrey thinks that he actually became andy kaufman and people get very jim carrey just got mystical about it but so stan Slavsky actually isn't i don't think he would actually like daniel day lewis he's that's kind of like the stereotype of what his method is and i don't think that our listeners probably care that much about the actual techniques but it has to do with finding an emotional reality. Yeah, and you can, you've seen these stories, like even if you saw like back when Jared Leto was getting into character for the Joker and right. there were all these stories because they were trying to hype a movie that they knew was terrible about, he would send dead rats as gifts to, you know, cast members and he would do ridiculous and perverse jokery things and require people to call him joker mr j right you know for the entire time they were on set and all that sort of thing if you see a fun story like that or a gross story like that it's all trading on this idea of method acting right right exactly and then the thing to realize about that is that that's not always been the case we assume that's what acting is that you became come the character and enter into an emotional synthesis with the character that's kind of what we've come to accept that acting is but that's a very cosmically speaking new idea a shakespearean actor in shakespeare's time playing hamlet would not have tried to make himself feel like hamlet he would not have researched denmark so he could think and understand more like hamlet he would not have gone out and learned horse riding so that he could be very naturalistic in his horse riding scene as hamlet these are things that stanislavski came up with just as a way of approaching emotional truth, then the Americans really perfected it and turned it into what we call method acting. There's a guy named Lee Strasberg, who's a pretty famous American proponent of the system. And he was the one that really took it into going deep emotionally in a way that's, I would say, is probably unhealthy. Like if, if I have to cry, but the scene is I have to cry, I don't just work myself up based on the material. I think about the actual time in my life where my mother died or yeah. my dog was hit. I channel that and then I turn that into performance. So it's about digging into yourself and finding. Yep. And then there was a lady named Stella Adler, 
who riffed on what Strasberg did. And she said, that's gross. You shouldn't use your mother's death to create art. But what you should do is just become the character, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're Stanley, uh, however you say his name, if you're Marlon Brando's character in Streetcar, you need to know what it's like to work his job. You need to know what it's like to go bowling. You need to be smoking his cigarettes. You need to be drinking his beer. You need to get into that headspace. And Adler was Brando's mentor. Brando popularized the style of acting and brought it to Hollywood. And it changed everything. Streetcar Named Desire is the reason we have <clears throat> Tony Stark, for example. Yep. And you may say, say Robert Downey Jr. He's not method. You know, he doesn't make people call him. Tony Stark. But the synthesis between who Robert Downey Jr. is and who T Tony Stark is, is a th synthesis that can only exist because of the creative space created and occupied by people like uh, the, how do you say his name? I forgot the Russian's name. Uh, uh, Stanislavski. Stanislavski, right? So yeah. it's a whole world of acting that's yeah, different. It's, you know, it's different degrees and riffs on this sort of thing. So you bring up Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr., th the difference between him and Daniel Day-Lewis is Daniel Day-Lewis is going to become try to become Abraham Lincoln and right, it's yeah. going to look very different than him becoming some other character. What, what Downey Jr. is going to do is he's going to find the, the, all the points where, where Tony Stark is in fact, Robert Downey yeah, Jr. Yeah. And, and find a way of, okay, if I were, if I, Robert Downey Jr. were Tony Stark, how would I approach, how would I deal, how would I respond? How would I, what emotion would I personally bring to this? So he's just finding that all those overlaps. And that's yeah. all, that's all has its beginning in a man named Stanislavski in Russia. The one other thing I should say about this, uh, we've talked about this on various podcasts before, but there's a lot of people that don't subscribe to this theory, particularly fine British actors yes. do a little thing called acting. There's a famous story. Where I, they I, pretend. Where they pretend. <laughs> To be someone they're not. To be someone they're not. What? And they do it really, really well. <laughs> and so there's- and How do you get the darkness of the Joker? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Unless I don't you know. <laughs> become the Joker. Well. Well, if you become the Joker, you know, what might happen is- You become suicidal and- You might die. You might OD on drugs yeah. in a hotel room with prostitutes. Well, and we all know stories, you know, River Phoenix, whatever, people who've gone too deep and never come back too deep down the rabbit hole. But there's a famous story- of Dustin Hoffman on the movie Marathon Man, his character is being tortured by a Nazi played by Laurence Olivier. And so he stayed up all night to get into character, to be tired, to be bedraggled, to be appropriately in the scene. You know, he was method acting. He was using the Stanislavski-inspired method. And then he came in and he couldn't remember his lines and he was botching everything and they weren't having a good day. And Olivier, this great, you know, the great 20th century British actor, asked him, why? And he said, I stayed up all night. And Olivia famously said, try acting, my dear boy. It's so much easier. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so Olivier, arguably one of the great 20th century actors of theater and film, had no patience for this yeah. method. But it did bring realism. And I'm sorry, Brandon, to no, this is great so into your Because the, the point I'm trying to make is that you had this realist movement in theater. And this is offset against the vaudeville. That's the word I was looking for. The vaudeville culture of the Broadway scene at the time. Mm -hmm. Eugene O'Neill starts writing his plays right before World War I. And so he starts bringing some respect to the American theater, but it's not quite what it'll be after the war wars, just as things shift in general. I mean, we've talked about how these wars are big reset moments in even cultural history and how modernism is, plays out with these. I've tried not to use the word modernism, but I just did. Right. People like it or not, modernism is what I study. Yeah. So 
And that's a large part of yeah. what we talk about on the booking. Yeah. So, you so like it. and you had some pretty significant other people involved. The Barrymores. I'm assuming you know who the Barrymores are. These actors. Drew, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew Barrymore. <laughs> Great mind. No, <laughs> Ethel, Ethel, John, and Lionel. She may be related to them for all I know. Is she Maybe. coming from their line? I'm, that's interesting. I'm not sure. Um, but they were significant. She was a child actor, so she probably had to have a way in. Yeah. So she was. She, they were significant in helping establish the theater as respectable. But you had, so there was a big shift that was happening. O'Neill was influential. She is a member of the Barrymore family of actors. There you go. Granddaughter of John Barrymore. Yeah, he's one of these three. And so. Oh, and uh, if you if you want to know who the Barrymores are, Lionel Barrymore famously played Mr. Potter in It's oh, a Wonderful Life. There you go. And he's like the patriarch of the Barrymore clan. Yeah. But so it was this watershed moment where theater was, it was significantly changing. Ibsen and Chekhov had a significant part in this. Stanislavski and changing the way that actors were looked at. They, the craft, people, even at Shakespeare's time, people didn't respect actors. It was seen as a trade, but it wasn't something that respectable people would go into. So if you read, for example, we've seen actors that weren't respected in novels that we've read. Well, definitely, you, There's definitely going to be them in War and Peace. Right. They're going to make an appearance. Well, certainly they have often over history been, uh, the trade has been likened to prostitution. Yes, just close to that level of low base kind yeah. of. And it's this yeah. bohemian art life that was seen as you're giving up respectable trades to be a part of this. And that's all throughout the 1800s. Uh, you see it in Dickens novels. That's, I think that's what I'm thinking of. Bleak House with Scum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the way that actors were looked at. This was the state of the acting world. You had these little sub cults where acting was really respected and honored, but those were like the romantics. The, the good, respectable people didn't look favorably on it. So then you have this watershed moment where su- suddenly theater becomes a respectable trade, which would then lead us into the current century where you would have people like Samuel Beckett that are just known as being great literary figures. And a lot of that had to do with what happened with Chekhov and Ibsen and these turning t- this turning tide. Another thing that will have a heavy hand in it is Hollywood. And we'll talk about that in relation to Williams and Miller when we get there. The last thing to know, another important name that people should know is Bertolt Brecht who was influential with German theater at the time. And um, he, was a, he was a communist, or, or he was a socialist, I guess. He wouldn't have called himself a communist. But he was really concerned about how theater could be political, how it could have a political reference to the audience. And so he's famous for coming up with the, the idea of the distancing of the audience with, what, what's it called, the estrangement effect. And so where you want the people to seem like they are not, he didn't want catharsis like Aristotle, was all about catharsis and the emotional connection you have. He wanted to be more analytical so that you look at the things that are happening on the stage and then you can judge it and make a change mentally and rationally that would then affect the way you lived. Germans, man. I know. But this is actually influential for theater at the time because then it begins to politicize theater. Everything, art in general, is becoming politicized in this century, which is important as we get close to the 60s with this theater and what it's trying to do. Even more important with Tennessee Williams than it is with Miller. Because people begin to see that art should have a social responsibility, that it's an artifact that can be used to, these are all terms I'm taking from socialist theory. People shouldn't think this is what I'm, I'm a proponent of this. It's an artifact that can be used to judge the system. You can use it to come to realizations about the uh, ideologies that oversee and rule, and then you can actually find a way to act in a way to rebel against it and to change it and to defy it. And part of theater was to make people woke, 
So people artist are, subversion. Yeah, artist subversion, and you can see this this strain even to today. And and so Bertolt Brecht was very influent. Bertolt Brecht was very influential in this, and he also came up with his own acting theory called it was called the Epic Theater. There was nothing epic about it. He called it epic because it was meant to criticize the regime and to change things. He also was famous for this this idea of acting as gestus, which really put focus on how actors moved in their hand movements. And this with Stanislavski became very influential in the way that avant-garde theater worked. And Miller and Tennessee Williams both fancied themselves as a part of this avant-garde theater. And so that's kind of where we are. We have the the rise of avant-garde, we have the rise of realism, and then this shift happening in an American theater. And then we get these wonderful playwrights that we get to read today. So let's do this. People can tell I really want to talk about Williams and Miller. <laughs> we can be brief with both of their bios and just kind of touch on what you need to know. Tennessee Williams, it's actually his pen name. He was born as Thomas Lanier Williams III. It took him about 30 years to become famous. His first famous play was in, in New York City was The Glass Menagerie. I've never read The Glass Menagerie of you. I think I've seen the movie. You've seen the movie. I think I have read and seen it, You've maybe, it? back yeah. in high school. But then he became famous, really, really famous, in 1947 for A Streetcar Named Desire, and then the movie was made like three years after that because Brando and what's the lady's name who played in it? Famous. In the movie? Yeah. Because it's different than the original play, but uh, Je- Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee. Scarlett O'Hara. Oh, yeah. Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara. Um, what was the original cast? Jessica Tandy played in the original. and she's, So she wasn't in the movie. She's the only one. They brought over everybody, and they brought Brando, who was the breakout star. But... And, a, and a follower of Stanislavski. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What's really important to know about the, him is, for Tennessee Williams, is he had a troubled childhood. And he didn't have a good relationship with his father. He didn't have a good relation. And his mother was, he had a troubled relationship with his mom too. In fact, famously later in life when she would die, he was older at the time, he would kind of tell people, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about her death. And so he had this troubled relationship in his home. He was sick as a young man. He had to be held uh, in his home for a while because he got a bad case of diphtheria. His father, Cornelius, was not a great man. He had a temper. He was a drunk. So Tennessee Williams grew up in this environment, which was very unhappy. And you can, that should not surprise anyone because that's pretty much the theme of every single one of his stories. Also, he felt the pressure of being gay and feeling the pressure of his father, who was a drunk and was abusive and not feeling like he could really be himself at home. And so finally, eventually he got to escape this oppressive household. One other thing to know is that he did have a sister. He had a sister, Rose, who suffered from schizophrenia, and she actually ended up having a, a lobotomy later in her life. This is, this is important because she was inspirations for a lot of the troubled female figures in his plays that don't get the treatment they deserve. And you see that in this play here. Mm-hmm. And his torment over the way she was treated and her suffering and their they were close as siblings. This really, this dominated his life. And so, but with Tennessee Williams, what you see especially is this new movement within literature. And you see it with like Sylvia Plath and some of these other writers who, the poets who would come a little bit after him, kind of contemporaries, but a little bit after. You see this movement towards autobiography being what really influences your story. Having the author make an appearance through their personal torments in the story and being pretty blatant about it. Tennessee Williams tried to pretend. I read an interview by him where he said, yeah, you know, my 
None of my stories are really autobiographical. They are influenced by things I know, but they're not really autobiographical. But that I always read that with Tennessee Williams as he doth protest too much, mm-hmm. because I think it's pretty obvious. All his things do this exact same thing. All his plays do the exact same thing. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof does the exact same thing that this play is doing, and then a gla- and the Glass Menagerie is doing. All the, they're all dealing with these tormented families that are unhappy. It's just pretty clear to me. So back when I was writing the first draft of my dissertation, Tennessee Williams was going to be a, cha- a chapter. His book of short stories called Hard Candy. And those are all just different ways of him dealing with his homosexuality and how oppressive it is that he can't express his homosexuality. So there's these really dark, perverse stories about things that happen in this theater. That's kind of the bookends of this book of short stories. Recommend that nobody read it. It's awful. But that that was kind of his thing. That's what he, every play surrounds that central theme. And so you have it in, if I'm understanding right, it's in a glass menagerie, right? Mm-hmm. That same idea that one of them is a homosexual and can't express himself. And then here it's, it becomes central to what happens with Blanche. And so it's just that, I really don't know if there's much more to say about him beyond that these things from his childhood influenced heavily his later plays because he had the career that, you you can go and read about it. After 1947, and then the extraordinary success of the movie, he became a superstar. In the 50s, 40s and 50s, he had a really bright career. He was influential for American theater. He changed a lot of things. He provided the way for guys who would be later successful in American theater. So now that you have this kind of really respectable, high art American theater that still exists to this day, you can go to Chicago and to New York and if you don't want to go to Broadway and be one of the plebes, you can go to like one of these high art theaters and see the plays that are really affecting people today, man. Right? That's got the truth and the reality. And that's the Arthur Miller is very influential for that. They probably look down on him now because in the 70s, he kind of had a downfall in his career and he wasn't as highly respected and he really couldn't get back up to the position that he used to have. Miller? Yeah. No, this is Tennessee Williams. Did that's I say right. Miller? Yeah. Sorry, it's this is Williams. And so, yeah, he just slowly slid towards oblivion and depression, and he got more and more depressed. He was a drunk until finally he died by choking to death on the lid to a medicine, right? Yeah, a bottle cap. Yeah, a bottle cap. However he got that in his mouth, I don't know, but he did. And that's how he died. So that's, that's Williams. All right. So Williams, one of the things that made him successful was the early patronage of a group called the Theater Group. Or not the, it's called the Group Theater. That's what it was. And this was a group in New York City of important playwrights led by a guy named Kazan. Do you, have you heard this name before? Elliot Kazan? Elliot Kazan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was extremely influential in, sh- in shaping through this group theater what American theater would become. So they were proponents of Eugene O'Neill, but Arthur Miller was also a part of this. And actually a fun one, one Arthur Miller was pretty influential in helping Tennessee Williams' career take off. Right. Because Miller was more successful than Williams early on. For what was kind of a depressing end to Williams' life, Arthur Miller kind of, he had the Hollywood celebrity life. He was born in Harlem, New York. His father was a successful business owner. He was Jewish. His father was a very successful business owner. He had success at school. He went to University of Michigan. He would have a good relationship with his school throughout his life. In fact, University of Michigan, like they honor him. I think they have buildings named after Arthur Miller. I mean, why wouldn't you if Arthur Miller went to your school? Where Tennessee Williams struggled a little bit in his early career, Williams Miller just kind of took off and he stayed that way. He had a celebrity life. 
He married Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> That's right. He was one of those guys. He was one of those guys. And in fact- Him and Joe DiMaggio. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the difference being with Miller is that he got mixed up with a lot of the stuff. So it wasn't, it wasn't McCarthy, but it was the House Committee's version of what was going on with McCarthy. House Un-American Activities That's right. So I think a lot of people get it mixed up and they think it was McCarthy going after Miller, but it wasn't actually McCarthy. It was the House Committee that was doing the same thing McCarthy was doing. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of, it was largely because of his involvement with things like the group theater, which because of their influence from Bertolt Brecht and his line of socialist playwrights, because the group theater saw itself as helping to establish an avant-garde theater. So they were influenced by socialist thinkers because that sort of political pushing with art has always been part of the avant-garde. So you had this group theater and with Miller, then this is the whole reason I brought up Brecht in the first place was because you can see that he heavily influenced the thinking and the mentality of this group to push things politically. Williams, to an extent, with his pro-homosexuality stance, but that was always latent and beneath the surface with Williams. He was never punching in the way that Miller punched. And I think a lot of that has to do with Miller's career. A lot of that has to do with just different mentalities. A lot of that has to do with the fact that he was an influential playwright and was in positions of power with guys like Elliot Kazan. And so he did, he was, what, what do they call it? He was... He had to go before this House committee, and he had his uh, passport revoked. Um, And so this embittered him towards what was happening. And then there was one playwright who I think betrayed everybody else at the time as well. And so that embittered him. They they named names to the committee. Right. And that embittered him as well. And this was kind of... That was Kazan. Was that Kazan? Yeah, I can talk about that. Yeah, let's get to that in a minute then. So Kazan named names, and this just really embittered Miller... And so if people read this play, you exactly know where I'm going with this, that this all inspired him to write The Crucible. Mm-hmm. Yep. And The Crucible- he is John Proctor. Yeah. So The Crucible is just one big crybaby story about this house committee and making overly obvious connections between the Salem witch hunts and McCarthy's- His own personal experience. Yeah. You're just like, but in, in the end, it's just like, that's like the cheap sort of allegory that I just don't like. Mm-hmm. Just to get it out in the open. That's my opinion on this play- I was wondering. I don't, say what? I was wondering. Yeah, you were wondering. Okay. <laughs> but that's pretty much what I've got. So if you want to talk about L.A. Kazan for a minute. Yeah. This, so uh, he was a both theater and film director, very famous, very lucrative, very influential guy. But he actually unites a bunch of things that we've done and a bunch of things from the modernist uh, mid-century stuff because he directed the original stage production of Streetcar Named Desire, helped- Really? Uh, what's his face? Williams conceive of it and perfect it. He's responsible for Brando. He's responsible for what's really famous and remembered about Streetcar Named Desire, which I think you could argue is Marlon Brando as much as anything mm-hmm. that keeps this alive mm-hmm. in the, the cultural memory. And that's Kazan as much as it is Williams. Then he did the movie of Streetcar Named Desire. He also, fun fact, did the movie of East of Eden, the James Dean movie. Dean being... Marla uh, Brando Jr., the second guy to really popularize the mumbly aesthetic of realistic acting. You know, I'm going to scratch myself just like a real person would scratch themselves in this scene because I'm not acting. I'm method acting. That was Brando and then Dean and then Dean died and then all these people like Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro and all these, you know, to, down to Daniel Day-Lewis and everybody we've talked about. But, but, but Kazan was a famous leftist socialist guy, but when he was called before the House on american 
Activities Committee. He named names. It's besmirched his memory um, on the left, obviously. Nobody likes him. But he famously, if I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie On the Waterfront, another Marlon mm-hmm. Brando movie, which Kazan did. It's a metaphor for Brando's character. Brando's character names names at the end of the movie, and the movie's all about why he's driven to that decision. You know, there's like this union dispute. I don't even remember what the setup for the movie is, but basically it makes... It's an allegory for why Brando needed to actually get rid of the corruption or or or, or talk. So, so Kazan is this very polarizing figure because he did these great things, great things specifically for the left, including establishing Arthur Miller, including establishing Tennessee Williams. But then he is the he is one of the inspirations for the Crucible because he is this guy that Miller felt very personally betrayed by. They were friends, and then Kazan decided that he needed to name the names of all the the communist sympathizers that he knew in Hollywood. And of course, he knew that's all Hollywood was. And so, you know, if you're reading about it in any kind of leftist um, or even just in general, generally, what they'll say is, you know, Kazan got people fired. He he ruined people's lives because he was not willing to, you know, a lot of writers were called up and they would invoke the First Amendment or the Fifth Amendment and then they would not say anything. Yeah. But Kazan wasn't willing to do that. It basically makes him a, historically in 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 the legends of Hollywood. He's a bad guy now, but he can't quite. He's one of those guys, kind of like Polanski's a child rapist, but he also made Chinatown and Ro- uh, Rosemary's Baby. So we can't mm-hmm. quite be done with him. Or Woody Allen, similar type situation. We all know he's terrible, but nobody quite wants to be done with Annie Hall. Kazan's kind of similar to that, maybe not not as actually evil, but he's his legacy is similar and that it's besmirched by this big thing. And yet he gave us Brando. He gave us method acting. He gave us modern cinema, modern acting styles. Kazan's super influential. You know, you could argue he's more influential in his way than people like Spielberg or, you know, Titchcock names that you might know. Just just in giving us Brando and giving us modern acting. I mean, modern acting, you know. You, you watch an old Humphrey Bogart movie and you're not quite sure why, but the acting feels a little false to you. Well, the acting that you're used to started with Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire and came to you through that lineage. And so you could argue that Kazan's one of the most influential people in terms of the entertainment that you partake of on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. And yet he's not well regarded for that reason. So I think that's all there is to say, but I just think it's fun that he unites not just Miller and Williams, but also he did a very famous version of East of Eden with James Dean. So he unites three of our three of our things. There we have it. There we have it. I don't really have anything else to add. I think that we've covered everything I thought was important for understanding where these plays come from. Right. So I should probably get this out of the way. We're only going to do one episode on these plays because we didn't think there was a ton to say about them. We thought they were worth reading. I think. I don't know. Maybe I should ask you guys. Are you glad that you read these plays? What did you think about The Crucible and A Streetcar Named Desire? Maybe we think one of them was worth reading and one of them wasn't. I don't know. Somebody want to make a thesis statement here? Streetcar was a better play and I could have done without reading it. The Crucible, even for being a hack allegory, is the kind of play that you could read even just as a a Christian feeling a little bit under pressure Mm -hmm. and find some ways to benefit from it, but... Yeah, I my my history. Maybe I should ask you guys. I don't know. Does anybody well, have any baggage they want to talk about? Or I mean, I can I can point out the fact that I read The Crucible with some of my students. Mm-hmm. None of them really enjoyed it. They got a kick out of some of the witch stuff, but we did get a decent discussion about what Jake mentioned. So some of them just naturally brought it up. Right. 
that it seems it's a natural thing to process. Yeah. And for that reason, I don't, I don't want to put this on my blacklist. Yeah. No, you're not going to, not going to hang it, not going to pull a McCarthy and censor it. Censor yeah. It, yeah. Um, now I remember reading it in high school and I wish I could find the essay. Yes. Wrote, Jake wrote a famous essay about this. Yeah. World famous. World famous. It was out of this galaxy. It was, it was out of this galaxy. Probably. Yep. Um, no doubt. <laughs> I don't know why, but I read the crucible a lot. Actually, I don't even know if I've read it, but I've seen it on stage. I want to say twice. Wow. Once in a high school production. And then I've seen the stupid Daniel Day-Lewis movie. Speaking of Daniel Day-Lewis, everything's connecting. We need like strings oh, across did he, the... Did he play John Proctor? He plays John Proctor. And uh, good old Winona Ryder plays the floozy girl, the, you know, the main girl. Oh, yeah. um, and she's, she's terrible. I think she's kind of come into her own as a sh- really shallow character on Stranger Things. But <laughs> back when she tried yeah. to play characters with depth, <laughs> yeah. she sucks. <laughs> yeah. The good thing about the character of the mom in Stranger Things is that it's a really poorly written role and that's the perfect role for Winona Ryder. That's that's the thing that you, that drives me crazy about that role Mm -hmm. is. Well, for one thing, everybody praises it way too much. Like her role. Yeah. She's finally doing something. No, she's not. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, not to be a snob, but there's nothing interesting about Stranger Things folks. If you get a terrible person to play a terrible person who is, I mean, here's the thing. There's such a thing as a terrible one-dimensional person that you can stumble into by writing them badly and casting somebody who is a terrible one-dimensional person right? and capture something that's real. And that's just what that feels like. That Winona Ryder's character feels like a very real person. And I give nobody any credit for that. Right. They and have I written, hate them all. They should have, for wow. one of their main characters, they should have written a good mom and cast a good actress to play the good mom. Yeah, I. anytime they cut to her, I'm just like, oh boy, here we go again with Joyce. Disclaimer, we're not endorsing Stranger Things. I've not watched. I quit at some point. I've but. only seen the first season. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's wonderful. Everybody that loves Stranger Things, you're all wonderful people. All of you who disapprove of Stranger Things, you're right. You're all right. We're all, we can all be united in feeling feelings about Stranger Things or not feeling feelings about Stranger Things. I agree with that sentiment. It brings us together. There we go. We all have an opinion or or don't. Um, (laughs) So Winona Ryder plays the witch girl and she has these histrionic scenes where she's pretending to be possessed and it's really cheesy. I don't know. I kind of am irritated with The Crucible just because it's one of those things that I kept having to see and watch and, and engage with through my teenage years for whatever reason i don't actually remember why i don't remember specifically doing it in high school i just remember being made to watch the movie and being made to see the play i think maybe some friends of mine were in the high school play i don't know i don't even know what high school was it a lighthouse production no it wasn't lighthouse wouldn't do it probably but i don't know what it was so i've seen it a lot and i like it i think it's fine i think the final scene that it builds to the because it is my name scene is good but there's really just nothing to it it really is just a bold allegory you know there's not a lot of meat on them bones i don't think maybe a little bit more in the play proper than some of the versions that i've seen yeah but i don't know i don't really know what to say about it the only thing other thing i want to say about it is that one of the reasons that it bugs me a little bit is because it does so much set in stone the popular imagination when it comes to puritans and i just think it's bogus yeah yes the puritans weren't joyless dour hysterical terrible people by yeah, and it large just participates in that Hawthorne, Hawthorne. let's hate on the yeah. Puritans but not do any sort of historical research to make sure we're right. right let's use them as a 
um, a, a straw man argument for what we hate about America. Well, if you're going to judge the Puritans, you have to see them in context, you know? I mean, it's just like John Calvin burning Servetus. People never want to see that in context and see all the other towns where Servetus would have been burned <clears throat> to death. Or the reality that John Calvin didn't burn Servetus. Right, exactly, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm speaking in shorthand here. John Calvin couldn't even get Servetus's execution method mitigated down and to, mitigated he wanted it to be a beheading instead of a burning he couldn't even argue it down from a burning to a beheading or a hanging or something more merciful than a burning he couldn't get that done but even me saying john calvin burning servetus is a good example of me falling into my own trap which is the world has a very simple two-dimensional image of something that removes all context, historical context, theological context, philosophical context, every possible kind of context that yeah. might make this interesting. We yeah. could still say Calvin's a monster if we want. I mean, I don't think you actually could. But if you want to argue that, you could argue it. But you're going to have to argue it for more than just what you're gonna one to, little factoid. Yeah, what you have to argue is that the entire world was full of monsters. Right. And then you're going to have to say, still be faced with the fact that among this whole world of monsters, Calvin was actually maybe the least of them or one of the least of them. So you have to understand the kinds of oppression that the Puritans were actually reacting to. You have to understand what they were actually like, which I don't think was dour and joyless in the way that uh, modern leftists have come to see them. And you just have to see the good innovations that they had. You have to read their writing and realize, you know, some of it's pretty dense and annoying, well, but... Also, maybe actually study some of these trials and uh, read about Cotton Mather and uh, see if you don't end up sympathizing with some of the people who were on the uh, the other side of this. Well, that wasn't because gonna... yeah, I don't want to say much more than that. I wasn't but... going to say anything, but since you opened the door a crack, I'll put a toe through it and say there's a story. There's at least one. There's there, the Bible prohibits witchcraft, and there's a story of a witch that apparently does a witch thing, the witch of Endor in the Bible. And I don't believe that, you know, I read a commentary one time. Actually, I think it's Matthew Henry who says, well, obviously she didn't actually have any power. It was either all tricks or it was just, this was the one time it worked because God brought Samuel back. But yeah. I believe that that witch was capable of doing witch things. I don't know. We don't have to get into it, I guess. But uh, it does also seem like she's surprised that Samuel... She's very surprised. But I'm not sure that she's surprised that something didn't show up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I don't think she was just a charlatan that, or like the Egyptian sorcerers, like they right. made snakes, right? There is demonic power in the world. And so I don't want to say anything more than that either. But I think, and I'm not, don't take by implication the fact that I think everything that ever happened, including what happened in Salem was just great. Well, I guess more of what I want to say is look at the, all of the facts and just ask the question. So was there nothing demonic on any level right. <laughs> going on here? Like, yeah. Well, it's also, it, it's a little bit like McCarthyism, actually. I read a little bit about McCarthyism in preparation for this. Poor me. Pity me. But it's an interesting topic. And it's not that I don't think McCarthy was, he definitely lives down to the stereotype if you read about him. You know, some right pe people on the right want to make a hero out of him now. I don't think you can do that. But what you can do, if you start to read about it, is realize it's just really complicated. Right. Yeah. There was Soviet influence. There were spies in, you know, there's um forget what it's called, but there's been documents uh, de, um, declassified, declassified, declassified since yeah. then that show all the Soviet activity happening and the secrets that were being sold. And in the middle of the of the 20th century, right, like the communists were a threat and they were 
actively working. And of course, they were going to find enclaves in the leftist socialist Hollywood, you know. So it's not to say that all, you know, Donald Trumbo's career should have been ruined or anything like that. But it's just to say it's a little bit more complicated than Joe McCarthy. Donald Trumbo, a real person, not Nathan, uh, for those of you who don't know, not Nathan making making up a Don- name. Yeah, no, he's making a fan of Donald Trump. Or- yeah, no, <laughs> Donald Trumbo is a screenwriter who's blacklisted. But Walter White plays him in a in some in a movie in a bio, bio, uh called Trumbo. So I don't know where the line is, and you can. I mean, there's so many things that go into it: free speech versus sedition versus where do you draw the lines? Who is the good guy? Who is the bad guy? And the only point I'm going to make about this is that. It was just really, really, really complicated. Like, it's not as simple as cartoon villain Joe McCarthy started going after wonderful, innocent people. That's just not the whole story. That might be a component of the story, but it's not the whole story. Um, And that's the same thing I'd say about the various witch trials. And if you want to know about them, you just have to read about them and make up your own darn mind. Yeah. Brandon is searching studiously for something right now. Yeah, I was. I'm not sure I'm going to find it. Searching through all these. This play is weird because you don't know whether or not it's meant to actually be played and performed or if it's supposed to be read. It's certainly at least presented in a way that is very reader friendly. Well, you have in a way that few plays are, I think. You have these weird sections where these notes with history and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, no narrator is going to pop on and be like, now so and so was. Yeah, I found myself resenting that, actually. I didn't want all that information. Yeah, you don't want it. And it also doesn't help because often it's it's just it's just wrong. Like where he accuses on Reverend Hill and the others on the stage we conceive the devil as a necessary part of a respectable view of cosmology. Ours is a divided empire in which certain ideas and emotions or actions are of God and their opposites are of Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Which is just, I mean, he's unfair. He's He doesn't understand Christianity. No, so or he, care to particularly. Say what? Or, or particularly care to understand it. Yeah, and so he just makes these broad sweeping assumptions about the Puritans and about their even their beliefs and doctrines, which are just mm-hmm. wrong because that's, I mean, that's what Augustine was fighting against was this idea that you had a God and a devil that were equally powerful. Right. And that's not, no Christian believes that. And so just like no Christian believes that there's not a way to purge themselves or wash themselves of sins, which he says is one of John Proctor's issues is that he has that Puritan belief that you can't ever find a way to wash yourself of your sin. Right. Which is partly true, but also completely misses the point. Right. And none of the Puritans would particularly agree with that. Yeah. I don't know. There's also just the fact that like, if people don't know, the real John Proctor was like 63 and the real girl was 15. Yeah. Younger. Like he, he aged her up and aged him way down in order to stack. Like he did a bunch of deck stacking. Yeah. yeah. He wanted to make, he decided the story was going to be about sex mm-hmm. and he decided that that was how he was going to make it work. And that is all his own fabrication. Which I think actually takes away from the point that he wants to make because yeah. it, I mean, it allows the plot to work very neatly and do the things that it needs to do. And maybe it's the easiest solution. Like if you need to motivate Proctor to do this, at, to do one thing at a certain point and then do it a different thing. But well, it just, if it you just, need Proctor to have a troubled conscience and to be willing to fall right. on his sword as an act of penance, and you really need Proctor to have something like that to overcome, then it's easy. It's super easy. It's almost, It's kind of too easy. That's kind of what I feel about this whole play. It's just cheap. Too easy. It's cheap. It's too easy. But you can see a good and you can see a good performance of it, and it works. I mean, and I have, and it 
It works just fine. It works just fine. You know, that is something to be said. When you're just reading it, it's like, it's the things that don't work stand in sharper relief when you're reading it, as we've commented many times with Shakespeare. Those are the dilemmas in any play that, you know, a director has to find in his cast have to find their way forward on. Mm -hmm. You find somebody who can really deliver those faux Puritan lines well and makes all the difference. Yep. Yeah. Convince you. Daniel Day-Lewis does a pretty good job in the movie, as I recall. Although beware, I think there's some nudity as there would be in that first, uh, it's only implied in the play, but, or talked about, but they they show the scene where the girls are dancing with the Tabita or whatever. Beware, listener. Taituba. Taituba. Beware, listener, if you watch the movie. Is the devil out there dancing with them? Hey, Brandon. Well, that's the whole question. Yeah. The devil that is repressed sexuality and hysteria on a mass scale is out there dancing indeed. Uh, Anything else you guys want to say about the Crucible? Not really. Nope. Does it, how many lampposts? Oh, man. You know, it's not, it doesn't really fit in the world of Narnia, so mm. I'm just going to give it zero lampposts. Okay. How many hangman's nooses? Hangman's nooses. Out of seven? Out of seven. It would be really fun to see this in Narnia. <laughs> like, <laughs> Hysteria sweeps the, yeah, the white witches. Bacchus comes yeah. dancing across. Yeah. Let's <laughs> hang Bacchus. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, at the end of Caspian, we we basically need a trial for everybody. Yeah, out there dancing with Bacchus. That would be great. That'd, that'd be good way to clean. <laughs> we should write that little yeah. interstitial uh, Narnia. He book. was out there dancing with Bacchus too. Right. <laughs> who there did you Who did you see out there, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Got all sorts of little fun stories we can tell. So is the booking official booking position? The Crystal's fine for what it is, but also kind of cheap and whatever. Yeah, there are better fair. ways to spend your time. But yeah, yeah. if you're looking for a cheap allegory on what it means to stand in a world that's... I think that the historical value of the play is what makes it worth reading. It's the context of this episode that makes it interesting. It's the McCarthyism and the development of the modern play and modern theater and modern acting, stagecraft, whatever, that, you know, makes The Crucible worth talking about. Yeah. But... Well, that's kind of how I feel about Streetcar, actually, too, because it's such a, if we can move into that now, yeah, it's such a, it shows a society in transition. It captures a snapshot of certain things that had heretofore perhaps been unspeakable, or at least Williams wants to act like they were, and now he's rubbing our faces in them. And it's just, now it's like, who cares, you know? Like all the, you know, Stella could actually be attracted to Stanley, even though Stanley mistreats her. Ugh, you mean provocative. Blanche? What's that? Oh, you mean Stella? Yeah, I meant Stella. And also Blanche. Well, and also Blanche. Yeah, and, you know, actually there could be sexual chemistry between all of them because Stanley's just an animal. And And that poor guy that killed himself, what was so bad about him when you have a monster like Stanley who's an animalistic brute who beats his wife and rapes his sister-in-law? Right. And also then you're supposed to be thinking about how was that Stanley character, how was he created by his social surroundings? Right. Because that's part of the... That's part of the avant-garde nature of this play is that it's giving a character like Stanley. It's they, the system, man. It's the system. They're giving a character like him who's a Polish immigrant or whatever. He's not an immigrant, but he's he's Polish. And so he's- Probably the son looked, of an immigrant. Yeah, or, he's looked yeah. down on. He's one of the outcasts of society. And so it's giving him a voice. Right. And that's part of- that's part of The monsters we've made. Yeah, that's part of what politics would do with art is the it's monsters all about- we've enabled. And it's still the same way. The Who do we, we give voice to? The sins we tolerate and the sins that we don't. Meanwhile, Stella and Blanche come from old money. They, right. they think that they 
still have a right to this country. Yeah. They're like the 1%. But it turns out what Stella really wants is to be brutalized by the proletariat. Yeah. In her heart of hearts. That was also trimmed down for the movie, by the way. When he yells for her and she comes in the play, it's very obviously like she wants this. But in the movie, it's much more ambiguous. Yeah. So thank you, Breen Office, Catholic censors of Hollywood at the time. Yeah. Um, I guess I would argue that why did we, why would we ever need that sort of realization put into art? Maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know what help it is to us. To I mean, have he's that a, shown on the stage. He's acknowledging realities about human sexuality that Jake and I have acknowledged in The Ville, for example. Did Williams give us the right to actually engage with that kind of material? No, because Shakespeare was admitting those sorts of realities in Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's not like he was being that sort of... All he's doing is giving us the, the freedom to not feel so bad about it. But if the theater had actually gotten away from Shakespeare, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. If the theater had gotten away from Shakespeare and turned into Gilbert and Sullivan fluff, if we'd so lost touch with our own depravity, the idea of Stella being still attracted to Stanley or the idea of Stella's, of Blanche's first husband being a gay man could actually shock and provoke and titillate an audience. Maybe it was necessary. Maybe at the time that it came, the only place that we would allow for any kind of realistic approach to human behavior wasn't Shakespeare. I don't know. I'm, I'm In our high art that we didn't really want to feel too much about. Yeah, exactly. Shakespeare is so removed from us that he can talk about the human condition. But actually, when I'm going to write a popular play, I'm not supposed to talk about the human condition. And so William says, no, I want to talk about the human condition. From an authorial perspective, that's perverse and cynical and bitter. From That's his perspective. Yeah. I don't want to... I don't want to give that we needed this particular play. I don't, I don't want to give that. But, but I, I'm with Jake here. I'm not sure. That, and I think that was what I was trying to say was that maybe this sort of thing was necessary, but I don't think this play in the way that it did it was necessary. There, there were other solutions that were healthier. I, I'm, I'm with you there. Because the whole cynical, but also this play just feels dirty. Yeah, it does. I don't like the play. I and mean, that's what. And ugly. so I'm also coming to this from knowing other like, lots of other people were trying to do similar things. And you, okay, maybe this is the one that 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 broke it. That broke it. But even in other genres, it, it's not like Flannery O'Connor wasn't writing right around the same time doing the <laughs> same kind of thing. This was in the air, or even Hemingway. Sure. And as perverse as Hemingway was, it didn't feel dirty like this. Mm-hmm. And this is what I feel with a lot of Tennessee Williams, like with his hard candy stories that he would write later. It's just a lot of it's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the, it's the stuff you're not even supposed to look at or even think about. I don't know what the word you're looking for. I, the word I kept thinking of was adolescent. Illicit. Illicit, yeah. yeah. It, to me, it feels adolescent. It's like, ooh, did you know, God, did you guys know that sometimes when a man beats a woman, that'll turn her on? Like it kind of has that cheap titillation quality to it. So there. I've done my duty. I've said it's trash. Yeah, in defense of Flannery O'Connor, she was able to rec- she was able to suggest that these things were realities without completely showing them. Does that make sense? She showed a lot. I mean, she did show a lot. Yeah, and I'm not saying that everything needs to be the Flannery O'Connor model of judgment. That's just blatant like that because right. we had our issues with that as well. It's the sort of titillation you're talking about here, though. That I just it's not healthy because this man was given to perversion. And I don't think he had any qualms about trying to give you to perversion too Mm -hmm. and make you enjoy it the way he did, or at least feel bitter about not being able to give yourself to it in the way that he wanted to give himself to it. Because in the end, that's all he wanted was to be able to go into 
theater houses and not be judged. Yeah. And we wanted to present a character who was a a sexually charged animal who everybody was going to bow to. to he was the kind of man that you feel like Tennessee Williams was attracted to. Mm-hmm. And he's the kind of man that he expects every woman is attracted to. And that actually everybody is attracted to. And so it's basically parading this specimen of sexuality that Tennessee Williams is just perversely enthralled with and wants you to be enthralled with too across the stage and watching him wreak havoc on everyone around him, then unleashing Marlon Brando to be and do that. And so do, is that really something that we want to make the case that we need is we're, we're so blithe in our inability to see our own depravity that what we really need is a hypercharged sexual being animalistically charging around on a stage, making us all excited, whether we're gay or straight. Yeah. So it's like with Bertolt Brecht, one of my issues with him is that he thinks that you can possibly be distanced, that there can be this sort of alienation between you and what's happening. I think all of art, I think Aristotle was right. All art works by playing with your emotions Mm -hmm. and by either causing you to feel the right way about things or feel the wrong way about things. That's one of the primary things that art does. And I don't think that you can just be distanced like Bertolt Brecht wanted you to be. And if that's what Williams was going for, I don't think that you can do that. I don't think that you can just distance yourself from Stanley and the stance that Tennessee Williams is taking and not come away burned if you're not careful. Well, and if you know Brando, I don't think you can divorce this play from the specific actor, the specific performance, the specific movie, the specific stage version. And Brando's a very attractive man at the time. I mean, he is playing, you know, it's not like we've got some ugly... Danny DeVito looking dude playing. No, he makes this thing pop. No, he makes it seductive. He sells it in. And he's unclothed for a good portion of it. Well, seven lampposts. Seven lampposts. Love you, Tennessee. Now we don't. <laughs> this thing, don't read this play, folks. I tried. Have a little sympathy for me, folks. I tried to defend it. Tennessee Williams, though, pretty trashy. And especially when you put this play in, in his oeuvre, when you read all of his other works and you realize it's just this again and again and again and again with the sexual repression and the nasty sex and booze and sweat. It's just a hotbed of animalistic passions that are either being repressed or given to in a really nasty, vile type of way. It's just, it gets really old, actually. It's boring. Yeah. It's just boring. Yeah. I guess you could say it could get boring if the author mattered, but the author really doesn't matter. Who cares about them? He's not even worth yeah. saying. Yeah. All right. Well... How many lampposts do we want to give streetcar? Or how many streetcar? How many bowling balls? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Do we want to give two? Two out of seven? That's what I was thinking. I was thinking one and a half. One and a half bowling balls. So to... I'll, I'll round it up to two for just admitting that he's a good writer. Yeah, this is a better play than It's a better Crucible. play than The Crucible. Yeah. There's no question of that. He certainly does. Uh, what, do you, what do you want to say? He, he dresses it up nicely. He's a good writer of ornate Southern dialogue, and he finds a way to make all these characters and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> well, all right, folks, Jake's going to have to run, but me and Brandon will continue and do donor shout outs here. But, but I want to give a special shout out to our friend Emily, who wrote to us just this past week, expressing some love for the booking and some other concerns and uh she afforded us a really nice opportunity to to address some things and uh so yeah thank you emily thank you for being a fan and thank you for loving and caring enough to write to us yeah it was really sweet and it meant a lot to us 
Every to everyone who's not Emily, you'll never know why. Yep. Too bad. Too bad, so sad. And now with my magical voice, I will make Jake disappear. Bring! Oh, what's this? Jacob Jacob. Jacus. J- Jacus, yeah. Yeah, Jacus left us. Jake has. That's what I was trying to say. Completely natural. Jake has left us. Yes. He Abandon us. Had, he had to go do things. And so he left us to do donor shout outs, which is exactly what we're going to do together, Brandon. Nice, Nathan. I couldn't be more excited. I'm really excited. Now, how do you, what is a donor shout out exactly, Brandon? A donor shout out is where you shout out a donor mm-hmm. who has supported us on patreon.com forward slash the booking. Right. For at least amount of $10. At least amount of 10 At least amount of $10. At least yes. amount, yes. At least they give $10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and we will shout them out. We make up fun nicknames for them, and we do fun things to make it worth their while to be shouted out. Yeah, and I will point out that we have people who give less than $10, but they don't get shouted out because they're not at that special $10 level. We appreciate their money, just not as much as those who give $10 or more. We appreciate their money. We don't so much appreciate them. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> and now we don't appreciate them because they're all gone. No, I'm just kidding. Every dollar helps. If you if you give one dollar, five dollar, it's 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 so helpful. And I really the the model for fundraising that we wanted to do with this podcast with Warhorn Media in general is the widow's might. I, I love that we have normal people that we don't go after big pocket donors as much. I just uh, love the crowdsourcing model. It's great. So, <laughs> so our I'm, heart shouts you out, even if you give less than ten dollars. Right, I we, we had to have some kind of a cutoff for yeah. it. But in, in, in yes, as Brandon says, in our hearts we shout all of you out. But with our mouths, we'll shout out the people that give ten dollars or more because that's the deal. Now, Brandon, yeah, why don't you uh-huh. say something witty oh. and profound and memorable? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> <laughs> about. <laughs> these people <laughs> okay yeah i was in a situation recently where somebody t- somebody said to me be witty it's actually not very helpful no not, it's better if you have like a thing to bounce off against for wit like if i give you a formula or something then yeah. you can be witty within that formula so why don't you compare each one of these per- people to a food okay <laughs> that's easier <laughs> i was ready to do some witty stuff nathan but let's do this instead <laughs> okay uh or if you think of witty things, you can say it. Uh, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Uh, they are a brisket and a quiche. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I wonder which one's which. <laughs> the artful Anthony Dodger. Oh, the artful Anthony Dodger. He can be nothing less than a kumquat. Nothing less than a kumquat, sir. Take that to the grave. Little Anthony's... I don't even know what I meant. Just take that by the gra- to the grave, a phrase. <laughs> I acted it like is it now. was. <laughs> Take that to the grave. That's uh, our next t-shirt. Take that to the bank. There's Take that to the something is a phrase. Yeah. Like, oh, by the way, people should know that if they give 25 or more, they now get a t-shirt and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. They can uh, see it on our Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. People should check out our Instagram. We've recently re-engaged by, with Instagram. By we, I mean Brandon's taken over our Instagram account. And Brandon is the master of wit, wiz, wisdom, and whimsy when it comes to Instagram. He was actually having a lot of fun with his company's Instagram account. And so he said, don't. Your company doesn't need to be on Instagram, Brandon. Yeah, it may have also been that the other owners of the company thought that that wit and whimsy was not appropriate to <laughs> a land and title account. <laughs> was better served, the booking account. Yeah. But it's been a lot of fun. Go there, check it out. As we were saying, Little Anthony Dodger. No, sorry. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Yeah, uh, he's uh, one of those long Tootsie Rolls that looks like a cigar. Oh, lucky him. <laughs> yeah. 
By the way, folks, go to 114 West Magnolia Avenue, Suite G in Auburn, Alabama, 36830 is the zip code. Get yourself some fine tobacco there. Uh, you know, it's manly. So he's more, he's like one of those Slim Jims. Mm-hmm. There you go. It snaps when you bite into it. It's yeah. all greasy, and, but it's, you still love it. And it looks like a cigar. Yeah. I'm just trying to find something that looks like a cigar. Right. Exactly. And sometimes a cigar is a cigar. Sometimes a cigar <laughs> is a cigar, as, as the great Dr. Freud reminded us. The Immortal... Chelsea E. Immortal Chelsea E. Oh, she is Wisconsin cheese curds. Good. Because we have actually eaten really good Wisconsin cheese curds with her. We have. You know who has overrated Wisconsin cheese curds, I would say, is Culver's. Yeah, they're still fine. Who recently came to our town? They're still fine. But people are like, go for the cheese curds. And it's like, "Mm, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being grumpy. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Now, they are definitely... A bottle of Jim Beam mm-hmm. and uh, a porterhouse steak. A porterhouse steak. Wow. <laughs> I guess that sounds like a great meal. <laughs> I'm guessing Little Annie Oakley is the bottle of Jim Beam. Yes. Okay. Lily of the Valley? Lily of the Valley. Oh, she's like one of those fancy deconstructed salads that has flower petals over the top. A fancy deconstructed salad that has flower petals over the top. Yeah. I've seen this before. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds delicious. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Oh, they're two Cornish hens. Two Cornish hens. Mm -mm. And of course, the Keith Master. Oh, the Keith Master. He's he's a plate of nachos. A plate of nachos. Maybe the most delicious thing we've we've said so far. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Uh, He's uh, he's that award-winning roast. An award-winning roast. Because we have associations with that. Uh, John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max, they are a turducken. A turducken. Because you got the three all together. Mm-hmm. And it makes one delicious meal. Mm-mm. The deep fried turducken. A deep fried turducken. Even better. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. <laughs> uh, they're a block of cheese from yeah. Wisconsin. There you go. It's not cheese curds, but it could end up being cheese curds. I don't know. You could curd it and you'd have cheese curds. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Uh, she is. You could help me with this one, Nathan. What do you think she is? Oh, Brandon, I think she's sour cream soup. Sour cream soup. This is, is the soup she makes, and it sounds dumb, and everyone agrees the world over that it has a dumb title, but it's a absolutely delicious soup. There you go. Maybe one day I'll contrive a, an ex, a, a chance for you to experience this soup. Yeah, sour cream soup. That's what she is. It's quite good. It doesn't taste like sour cream. Console Prime Adam. Console Prime Adam. Oh, he's... Sounds like a Star Wars thing, so he's that uh, bread that Ray eats in the first of the new movies. Like when she's just in the desert by herself? Yeah, he's she's that bread. munching on something? Yeah. Remember, mm-hmm. it like inflates. Jeremy, the dark-hooded Lord of Death. He is a, <clears throat> I think it's from Rockets. Mm-hmm. I th- always get the name of this place wrong, but he and I love to go to Louisville together mm-hmm. and eat at this hot chicken sandwich place. He is a sandwich from that hot chicken sandwich place. And it's the best hot chicken sandwich in the world. Fascinating. Because the world is full of mediocre hot chicken sandwiches, no, I would say. delicious. And I think the bookening should take a trip down there one to brainstorm and stuff. And yeah. If we want to, we can go to this chicken place. Hey, we'll put on a, a live show, Louisville fans. Come on, Louisville fans. Bring us up there. Make it happen. Give us an excuse to eat a hot chicken sandwich. I don't know that I've ever had a hot chicken sandwich that I've really liked. I've been disappointed by many hot chicken sandwiches in my life. So I think this would be a good opportunity to prove me wrong. Uh, Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Um, what's your favorite food, Nathan? Uh, pepperoni pizza. Then he I'm is. Five. Then he is not. He's the opposite of whatever pepperoni pizza is because he's not you. So like dirt. Yeah. 
Good. <laughs> He's a dirt pizza. He's a dirt pizza. <laughs> hey, you dirt pizza. Oh, the closest we can get to dirt pizza would be uh, pizza with mushrooms. Pizza Just with mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah, gross. Maya! Maya! She is. Oh, man. She's pad thai. Good. Good yeah. for her. She is pad thai. Love a good pad thai. Love a good pad thai. I always feel vaguely guilty that I'm getting that instead of something more interesting at a Thai restaurant and yet always order the pad thai because it's so Yeah, good. she's an amazing pad thai. She's either that or she's like that really good uh, like Vietnamese soup, like pho or something like that. Yeah, yeah, One yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for her. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judy of the Ladies of Justice? Is Judith. It Judith. Judith. Hi, Judith. Sorry. Uh, they're a red hot pepper and a yellow hot pepper. A red hot pepper and a yellow hot pepper. Really hot peppers. That's excellent. Yeah. I love it. What about Danny the Dude? Danny the Dude is uh, a cookies and cream chocolate bar. Good for him, I guess. I think. <laughs> My kids love it. Yeah. I'm not sure that that really holds up to adult for adults. He's a Reese's peanut butter cup. There we go. There we go. That's a That's a candy bar that transcends age just like Danny the dude it transcends life it's one of the fundamental truths of reality <laughs> it really does <laughs> plato's <laughs> original forms there is a reese's peanut butter there cup is a there. reese's peanut butter cup all food strives to be it yeah we said danny the dude dj sammy g dj sammy g he is bringing the music in the house so he is for sure <laughs> the most musical of foods a jello shot? A jello shot, yeah, <laughs> sure. DJ Sammy G can be a jello shot. Danny and Benna, or no, no, I'm sorry. Strike that, reverse it. Benny and Dana Tiberius? Benny and Dana Tiberius, they are, oh man, uh, a Big Mac and a quarter pounder. A Big Mac and a quarter pounder. <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> <laughs> Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks? Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks, uh, they are... Two turkey legs that you would have at like a Renaissance fair because of the Shakespeare reference. So if you you just uh, some serving wench brings you a hunk and you just tear it off and yeah. you have like just Two a turkey leg. legs. Have you ever had a turkey leg? Yeah, I think I've had a turkey leg. Like at one of these fairs. Yeah, they're that. They're delicious. Sure, we can throw some deep fried Oreos on there too. That sounds get good. A county fair. Sounds good. Professor 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 X. They are lamb chops. Yeah, and mint jelly. True. Very true. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. Lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. I love you too. Once again, not the lyric. Now, what's Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan? Shepherd's pie. Shepherd's pie, of course. Very, uh, what's the word? Very medieval kind of song that he yeah. has associated with his name. Noah Constrictor? Noah Constrictor. Oh, he is fried rattlesnake. Fried <laughs> rattlesnake. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Marichip? Marichip. Uh Oh, she's, what do they eat in that? She's Lambus bread. Lambus bread. Yeah, that stuff's supposed to be very filling. Yeah. Natalie with a battery of Kung Fu Mastery. Man, that sounds awesome. She's, she is a tempuri crab sushi roll. Interesting. Yeah. Is tempuri crab sushi rolls, or I should say are? Spicy. Spicy? Okay. She's good. Interesting. Good. Good. There's a good place in Fort Worth that made a really good one. It was uh, Piranha's. Really? Name of the sushi joint, yeah. Although those are, I thought the Piranha's. She's that particular the... sushi roll from Piranha. Okay, fantastic. Good for you, uh, um, Natalie. What about the fair and fragrant maiden Chloe? The fair, the fair and fragrant. The fair and fragrant. The fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. Mary, 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 Mary,
Oh, they make these like scented lavender chocolates at this place here in town. Mm -hmm. And they're actually decent. I get them for my wife sometimes for Valentine's Day. She's that. Okay, cool. Good. A six-pack Zach with a mean attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Uh, Well, a six-pack of Budweiser and um, a grilled cheese sandwich. Grilled cheese sandwich for Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. With bacon. Yeah. Nice touch. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. <sighs> oh, he's uh, French fried potatoes because he's says says he's an American, but then he hates cheese. So there you he's go. French fried potatoes. You remember back around nine eleven when it became Freedom Fries? Yeah, he's freedom... not Freedom Fries. He's French. Yeah, fried potatoes. That's right. That's right. Thanks for giving. <laughs> Probably likes to eat frogs. Yeah. Jujitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Oh, Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger, why well, he can be no, uh, none other than barba- uh, Barbacoa. Barbacoa? He is Barbacoa, baby. That sounds delicious. Uh, Rachel. 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 What's Rachel? This one's hard. I'm trying to think of a food that whispers, mm. but it's also strong. Whisper, a strong whispering food. So it's like a subtle flavor, maybe, but a good yeah. one. Yeah. Well, it's not so subtle. She's kimchi. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that works. And we've got a new... Donor shout out to welcome to the donor shout out family. This is exciting. His name is Thomas. Thomas. Welcome, Thomas. Choo choo. <laughs> no, I thought about going <laughs> tank engine with his name, but I think Thomas is a very solid, respectable name. And yet it's the kind of name that can withstand adventures. And so he's Thomas the Tank. <laughs> Just Thomas the Tank. <laughs> Thomas the what, what's like an old fashioned like is it a howitzer tank what were they called like Thomas the yeah yeah a yeah, really cool tank yeah um here I'll just type into Google coolest tank the NR1 Leopard 287 is the coolest tank NR1 Leopard 287 tank <laughs> tank <laughs> Thomas the NR111 what Leopard <laughs> wait we'll call him let's see here can we just call him Thomas the Leopard Thomas the Leopard Tank. Leopard Tank Thomas. Leopard Tank Thomas. That's awesome. <laughs> Leopard Tank Thomas. See how this is done, people. Yeah, this is, that's how it's done. Leopard Tank Thomas. You, Love it. Yeah, you are... Uh, so there's this place in Fort Worth called the Elephant Lounge where you can smoke cigars and eat mm. a burger. And they have an amazing peanut butter cheeseburger. That's what you are. Sounds great. Yeah. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Peanut butter cheeseburger. Yeah, it's better than it sounds, people. The book of the day was written by mostly Brandon, actually, because this was a lot of context in this episode, but also performed by me, Brandon, Jake, produced by me, executive produced by Jake and Nathan. Like we were saying earlier, go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. $25 gets you a great t-shirt. $10 gets you a donor shout out. $50 gets you a book a month. Good deal. Lots of behind the scenes stuff. If you want to hear me rap, we just had a dumb cut rap that was too... Too saucy for the airwaves or something like that. So is that what it was? You can uh, too intense to be seen in theaters, kind of thing. So you can check that out. You can see behind the scenes videos, all kinds of cool stuff at patreon.com forward slash the booking. And we will be back back next week with Midnight's Children, I guess. Yeah, cool. It's a good one. Yeah, 
read it. Yeah, do it.